This is the Frontier Podcast, powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. Keith Nothaker, founder and CEO of Backtrack, even in college knew that he wanted to be an entrepreneur. When he was looking for something to sell online, he decided it was crazy that the police could test anyone for their blood alcohol level, but consumers couldn't test themselves. So he decided to solve that problem. Backtrack pioneered the consumer market for breathalyzers, positioning the product as an affordable, consumer-friendly safety device. In 2004, Backtrack became the first company ever to receive U.S. Food and Drug Administration clearance to legally sell the devices to consumers for personal use. Ledge sat down with Keith to share the story of his company from designed prototypes, manufacturing to distribution, and into the age of the smartphone. As Keith says, hardware is hard, but just like any other business, you buckle down and make it happen. Keith, great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Ledge, thanks for having me. So you have a really cool story that I, I want to get to tell. But first, I would wonder if you just give a, a two or three minute background uh, you know, introduction of yourself and your work before we dive into details. Absolutely. I'll take you way back. So uh, I was actually an economics major at the University of Pennsylvania. But early on, I knew that I, uh, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I just I needed to be almost I, I wanted to start a business. So I had internships doing online marketing sort of before the before the Googles and the, the uh, Facebooks of the world. So I actually started selling products online in school. And when I was selling products, uh, I thought, what are some interesting opportunities? And uh, people occasionally tend to drink alcohol in college. You know, some people, some people know that. Um, and so I just thought it was crazy. The police could test people for a DUI. And if you were above a certain number, you'd go to jail. And if you were below a certain number, they'd send you on your way. So I sort of saw a market opportunity there. Uh, started with e-commerce early, and this is this is 18 years ago now, 17, 18 years ago. Uh, we have worked our way uh, to the point where now we design all of our products and our software. We've created uh, this space that didn't exist before, and that's that's really exciting. You know, Backtrack pioneered the market for consumer breathalyzers, and it allows people to test themselves and, and know their alcohol level. So it's it's been and currently still is a really fun, exciting journey uh, that's involved a lot of exciting technologies. So start us off with, uh, you know, one guy in a garage or, you know, what was that version of your story? And, you know, right at the beginning there, actually making a product, you know, where, where's a product even come from, especially at that stage, you know, it's quite a long time ago. Yeah, you know, like you said, it's, it's one guy in, a, in an apartment and you're just trying to figure out where to even start. You know, it just, everything seems so, uh, so big and such a massive undertaking when really now looking back, it's just a bunch of steps. Anybody can do it. Uh, you know, you have, if you don't have a lot of dollars and budget, you have to be thrifty. But, um, you know, early on, I connected with some designers in the San Francisco Bay Area. I moved out here after school. We're downtown San Francisco. And um, just the first stage was just talking with people who had created hardware products before. 
and sort of understanding what, what are we trying to make? What are the goals? What, what are the benefits to the end user? And let's see how that would impact an industrial design. So we, we started there and took it from there. How does the, the product sort of prototyping and hardware idea you know, get to where then you're sort of starting to think about, I've got to make a lot of these and I have to distribute these things and um, I don't know, get them on retail shelves. I mean, consumer is such a different space than, than a lot of the, maybe the B2B types of, of uh, solutions, particularly in software that, that we deal with. So this is foreign to me. How do you get a physical thing and make lots of copies of it and get it on shelves? <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I know this now, but hardware is hard. People say that, and it's true. And the design process, uh, not having sort of studied engineering in school, that, that was all fascinating to me. And it's exciting. And you're creating this thing, and you're creating industrial designs, and you're doing prototypes, um, and that's fantastic. And then you get to a point, wow, we actually have to make these at scale to a very exacting spec. Uh, we have to pay for that. And then we have to sell them. So there's this whole sort of design process that is entirely different than the than manufacturing and sales. So, um, you know, we were fortunate. We, we connected with good partners who could help connect us with, you know, contract manufacturers. And so I, you know, took some early trips out to Asia and learned a lot. And, uh, you know, during one of our first big manufacturing runs for for one of the first products we designed ourselves, this model called the B70. I remember I booked a one-way ticket to China and I was there at the factory, you know, working with everyone and eating and until it was done, until we got it done and then booked the trip home. So you just, you just sort of either you're committed and you make it happen or you don't. And we've, we've certainly made a lot of, uh, everybody makes mistakes along the way. But uh, every day, every week, you learn more about what it takes to, to produce that hardware, make it right, and, and get it sold. And you talked about growing your own engineering department or engineering organization now, sort of in-house. Um, what was that like, you know, the, the process of deciding that we ought to now internalize those things and, and start to take over, I guess, you know, sort of our own design destiny and, and now you have hardware and software. So how does that all fit together from a personnel standpoint? Yeah, you know, especially in 2019, it's it's more and more a mix for a lot of companies. So we certainly make use of uh, long-term uh, engineering experts and partners that we've worked with for a long period of time that um, that are external to us. And we have people internal that are uh, making important contributions. So it's, to me, it's about what are you trying to accomplish? What, what resources do you have? And how can you get to that goal? Because we're, we're privately held. We've actually never raised outside capital, which is a very, seems to be a very rare thing in the Bay Area here. So our journey is very different than a company that, you know, maybe raises 20 million in, in VC funds and can hire out entire departments right away. We had to be smart about, um, okay, here's the mechanical engineering that we need done for this one product. What's the best way to accomplish this? So it was really more of a targeted approach, finding just fantastic people and, and groups that could help us and help us grow during during times when we were smaller and weren't as sure about the distribution. You know, now we can, because Backtrack has distribution in tens of thousands of locations, when we launch a product, you know, we know, we feel good that we're going to sell it so we can invest more up front. But, but a smaller company has to hedge their bets early on. 
and you've spent all these years sort of in your own company. Um, what percent of the days do you, have you ever woken up and said, you know, maybe I should go do something else? I mean, has it been love every day or what's that entrepreneurial journey been like for you? Some, some good days, some bad days, um, you know, just go through the flow there. Cause I think, and I asked that question specifically because, you know, there's this sort of trough of sorrow stage and cycle that, you know, a lot of, a lot of people go through and they don't get the immediate hit. So I, you know, I wonder what that was like for you because it's easy to look at it now and go, wow, he went from zero to, you know, uh, all these units and, and a big footprint, but you know, maybe, it, maybe it always didn't feel that way. Yeah. It's a great question. And honestly, it's something I thought about myself just more recently when I say, oh, I've been doing this for, for this many years. And the answer is, we've really created many different businesses along the way. And that's, I've been able to scratch my entrepreneurial zeal many different times with these, with these different businesses. And here are the specific examples. Um, you know, early on, we were just, we were trying to create a market just sort of through e-commerce. And we have a product and just try to sell it online. And I could make use of a little bit of e-commerce background I had. Then when we get into making your own product, that's a whole new world. That's exciting to me. I'm learning. That's new. I get to work with very smart engineers, hardware, manufacturing. Um, and then to open up sales channels, there, there was no category for breathalyzers that existed in Best Buy or you know, these other accounts. So that was something that we had to... Um, that was brand new. That was fresh. That was a different type of thing we were doing. And then we launched um, Backtrack Mobile. That was the first smartphone connected uh, breathalyzer. And so then we get into designing apps. And that opens up a whole new world, right? With the technologies and the power within a smartphone, uh, which in 2013, 2012, when we were designing that, uh, was just opening the doors to a brand new world of capabilities, right? We could have this rich display that people already had. We could, uh, we invented new features. You know, we showed people how long it takes for their BAC to return to zero. And, and we credit that to, you know, having the ability to work with smartphones. So having all of these different business units, and even now we're working on a, a wearable alcohol detector. That, that also, again, it's like I'm starting over fresh again, starting this new product where it has different needs and new customers. It's, if it weren't exciting, I wouldn't be able to do it. But uh, it's, it's all exciting with all these different stages. Whoa, partner. We interrupt this here podcast for a special message from Gun.io. Here at the Frontier, we do things a little bit differently. Sure, you could hire unvetted remote engineers from some of those other sites, but... Here at Gun.io, we have the most comprehensive vetting process in the entire freelancing industry. And we can present engineers to you within 48 hours. Now, you wouldn't choose a horse without taking it for a ride now, would you? Well, head on over to Gun.io slash podcast and your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Well, that one's on us, partner. That's Gun.io slash podcast. And you are in a space that would be easy, you'd think, from at least from an engineering and product perspective, to to clone and to you know disrupt, and yet you really went through you know multiple iterations and continued to kind of lead the pack there. Um, what was what was that thinking like? Like, how do you know when you get to the spot that you can do another thing and stay ahead of the curve? 
Yeah, I honestly thought that it would be easier to make accurate breath alcohol tester devices, and it is not an easy thing. You know, you somebody makes an electronic device, you make it in the factory, you throw it together, and boom, it's done. But with a, a breath alcohol tester, uh, one of the steps during manufacturing is you have to calibrate it. And what does this device do? But it's measuring exhaled alcohol that's coming from your, your lungs, and it's converting that signal into an estimate of your blood alcohol content. So there's actually calibration equipment where we're simulating human breath, heating a mixture of alcohol to a certain temperature, uh, having a certain flow rate, and uh, setting that as example BAC points in the calibration. So that's actually not, a, uh, not at all an easy process. And so that just making sure that we've had to focus on that and learn from that. And, and that's a, also a massive data exercise to make sure that we're uh, understanding the sensor data. Um, that's something that we wanted to prioritize. And that's important to do because uh, anybody can take a certain type of sensor and throw it on a circuit board and say, hey, this is my device. But to have it accurate and reliable over a longer period of time, that's an entirely different challenge. Talk about the big data in, in your business. I mean, you were doing business probably before it was called big data, and you've, you've got a long run there, so you must have been collecting all kinds of, of statistics and, and learning from, I imagine, data visualizations are, are important. What's that software backbone look like for a business like yours? Yeah, you know, so there's obviously like the manufacturing data that we continue to dive into in greater detail every week and every month now. And that gives us just more precision and better understanding of, of sensor performance in different environments. And uh, that's important. That That's really important, not just for us, but I imagine for any, you know, sensitive device. Uh, and then sort of on the, on the other side of this, uh, consumer facing, um, when we have smartphone connected devices, if people are saving data, uh, if they're taking results, uh, we have very strict and clear confidentiality. You know, users own their data. They can delete it. They can remove it. People say, oh, are you sharing it with police? You know, of course not. That's, that's not what we do. It's, it's your data. But um, that allows us when people have opted in to anonymize their data and share it with us, that allows us to see locations or time of day. We've put out public data studies showing uh, when people drink the most by time of day, when people drink the most by holiday. We've even done studies during uh, sporting events like the Super Bowl and watch like BACs rise and fall over the different quarters of the game. So it's, it's really interesting. It opens up a whole new world of, of in our area of knowledge about drinking. And, and it's really sort of new data for the government, for researchers, for understanding alcohol consumption habits, because people know they drink. And the Department of Transportation has uh, highway fatality data that they look at. But one of the things that was pretty exciting for us was we were able to match our data uh, with the peak consumption times. So people are peaking out uh, around 3 a.m. And that's actually matching up with the DOT highway uh, crash data. So just sort of adding to the public discourse on important events. And, you know, 10,000 people still die every year uh, from accidents that involve alcohol. So it's, it's a serious thing. And, and the data is just out there. And it's, and it's what we do with it that matters. So do you look at that as a public contribution also? Or is there a business line that you've developed, you know, around 
data as well. I think a lot of entrepreneurs think, hey, you know, I can monetize my data. Is that an an easy thing to do, or does it does it really only happen sort of downstream when you're you know critical mass? Yeah, you know, we don't do anything like that at all. We don't monetize the data. We're not interested in monetizing the data. Like I said, uh, the data that users create that's their own. They uh, can choose to anonymize it and share it, and many people don't. Or you can buy a device that isn't even smartphone connected, and you can just have it yourself. Um, but for us, when when I speak of these consumption reports or data uh, about when people drink during the Super Bowl, this is trying to elevate discourse and raise awareness. You know, awareness was one of the key things, one of our key challenges throughout the years. You know, we'd, I remember, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years ago being at the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas and people would walk by and say, breathalyzer, why would I ever want that? That's stupid. And so one of our challenges, in addition to engineering, was hey, just telling people, this is valuable for you. You should have this. Keep it in your car. Use it in your family. This is a serious issue. And we tried to make it something that that's, looks good and is sexy and you'd want to use and you wouldn't be embarrassed to pull out um, and test friends and family. So that, that's in our DNA to try to make a consumer product that's accurate, it's professional, but that people want to use. Yeah. And it reminds me, you know, hearing you, you say that and get excited about it, you know, it's easy to forget about all the really nasty failures that of of consumer technology, you know, your Google Glass or what have you that just, you know, would have tried to pass the same bar there and, and failed miserably and became a, a nasty meme. And <laughs> you've obviously, you know, avoided that, which which speaks to, um, you know, a, a design discipline. And I imagine you must have a pretty robust feedback mechanism from from users, uh, how fast do you iterate the product for you know next versions, and um, you know what feedback collection mechanisms do you have to know what people want? Yeah, I mean, it, does it ever stop? Is there ever a discrete stop and start to when you launch a product and when you're iterating on the next one? I don't think so. It, it's continuous. You know, we every every customer complaint, problem, report. Uh, we want to see that. We want to know that. We want to understand it. Um, we have to. Um, so there are just more ways to see customer feedback now versus ever before. I mean, you just talk, you talk about reviews and you talk about feedback and people expect to be able to uh, post negative feedback if they're not happy with a consumer product and they actually expect the brand to comment or get back to them. So I think that the the expectations for a consumer device are, are obviously higher than they've ever been ever before. And I, and I think that's great. I think it's going to ultimately lead to better products. And when you have a world where uh, we're going towards that just one global market, uh, it's important to have that type of honest feedback because there are a lot of bad actors in the world. And there are a lot of bad actors now trying to sell into the U.S. more so than ever before. So uh, I think people need to see that. And good good design teams and good manufacturers will take that into consideration immediately. So, and we're doing all the, all the stuff that I think leading companies should do. You know, we're creating prototypes ahead of time. We're testing well in advance of launches where, you know, we have our uh, sort of core list of supporters who are not, not friends and family, but like outside customers that want to get early access and we share with them and, and, you know, just sort of being ahead of the curve and have curve and having customer success teams work with that. 
and make sure that that feedback there gets directly sent to uh, a member of the hardware team and the software team. You know, I, I don't think you can afford to have like these different layers of bureaucracy and and have it you know filter through a lot of people. I like when it gets right to the people who are working on products. So, last question. You, you maybe are a fan of The Office, but I am. And uh, there's, a, there's a great episode where Jim is messing with Dwight and he, he starts sending faxes to Dwight from future Dwight. And he warns him that the coffee is poisoned. So he's messing with him. And I wonder if you could be you know, future Keith and send a fax back to yourself. You know, I give you a piece of paper and a Sharpie for 10 years ago. Uh, what's your, the coffee is poison. You know, what, what warning do you, do you give yourself if you get one chance? I'd say, don't be afraid of any technology. You can, your company and you can do it all. I think for me specifically, not being an engineer, you know, not saying engineering in college, it was, things felt exotic to me at the beginning. So I thought that I would need to I thought that we couldn't do stuff or it was only in the realm of certain other groups or people, but really um, if you find the right people and, and have them on your team, you can do anything. So I think that's important for us and for any company that really wants to be aggressive about inventing and creating great products. Great insights, Keith. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been really cool talking about your business. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.